0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com slash Weekly Tech. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Cutter Calloway, who's an associate professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also serves as the co-director of Real Spirituality, and we talk about his work on technology, film, and culture. Dr. Calloway has been actively engaging writing and speaking on the interaction between theology and culture, particularly film, television, and online media in both academic and popular forums. He's also served on the steering committee for the Bream Center's Church and Contemporary Culture Initiative since 2011. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Callaway, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your interest in theology and culture?
0: Well, first off, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. And I've got a background in pastoral ministry. I'm a <laughs> ordained-in-the-womb Southern Baptist preacher and uh, helped plant churches in college. And after that— uh, that really we were um, engaged in uh, interacting with sort of emerging adults at the time. And this is, you know, 20 years ago. And so it was a bunch of Gen Xers. And we were frustrated, I think, with institutional forms of religion, but we passionately loved Jesus and coffee and rock and roll. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so if you put those in a blender and imagine what a church might be, that's kind of what we were doing. But through my pastoral experience, I realized that one of the the great needs of the people in my congregation, and I include myself in that, was this question of of what does the church and what do Christians do with respect to the culture that they're navigating? Um, how do we how do we think about that theologically? How do we think about it practically? Um, and so, most of the uh, conversations, most of the concerns, um, m- most of the the creative possibilities, all. Had something to do with that kind of interface. And so um, most of my then academic trajectory came out of those questions that were born within that kind of ministry cauldron, right? That um, you know, you can't <laughs> technology, for example, when you when you meet a couple um in a in a NICU after um, you know, they've they've lost one Child as a twin to a premature uh, birth and and has died. The other twin is on life support and has machines all up in them. And they're asking end of life questions, or how, you know, these are all um, profoundly and deeply theological questions. Um, and at the same time, are only presented because of modern technology and culture, right? That that we even have that as an option to consider. And so um, I thought, very foolishly, that (laughs) if I learned more, um, I might be more competent. Um, And so I pursued a a degree. My first uh, PhD was in theology and culture, so it was a systematics and cultural studies degree. Um, And then I'm about to be done with a a degree in in psychological science, um, where I'm I'm kind of taking a turn at at trying to design empirical studies, investigating some of the stuff, the way that culture and media and technology Um, affect us, uh, both as Christians and then uh, more broadly. And so, again, it all goes back to my initial calling to the church and the questions we're asking there. And from that point, just thought I, there's no way for me to get around this this uh, question of how does culture um, interact with us as Christians in the church.
1: I really love that because you take these very practical concerns that your people have, um, that you even have, these big questions, and you seek to apply scripture and kind of a, a Christian worldview to understanding these things so that uh, we can be better equipped to engage the culture around us. And I know one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is how you've written extensively on media and the way that media shapes us as a people. Why do you think that digital media, especially, I know one of your interests is in film and music, why do you think digital media has such a profound effect on us as human beings? It can sway our emotions. It can uh, change how we view and think about the world around us. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, I mean, uh, that's a big question. <laughs> there's there's probably a couple of things. I mean, one, if you look at most of the media we consume— um, it is, uh, still at, at the current moment, um, you know, a lot of people talk about sort of user generated media. You know, we have all these things where the users are producing content that then we share and stuff, but most of the s- statistics show that, that the bulk of the media we consume is still produced by these sort of high level, uh, industries, the stu- the film studios, the TV studios, et cetera. Um, and then some, some smaller ones. So YouTube and whatnot, even the YouTube stuff, um, is most of it is consumed by, you know, major corporations and stuff, um, or produced by major corporations, and I take that to mean most of that is actually very narrative based. Um, it's it's a, a kind of media that lends coherence to an otherwise <laughs> uh, seemingly random and chaotic world. Um, and right now, because of of the the way that the fabric of at least Western society has emerged over the last couple decades. Um, There's a great amount of disintegration um, in society and, and what media does, and this is uh, sort of a side answer to your question is if you get caught up in a certain kind of silo of media, especially what it's doing is functioning in a way that in the past religious communities functioned. Um, And that is we're sharing these stories that lend coherence to the chaos of our lives And, and I think that's what most media is doing. It's leveraging that power of storytelling, of narrative, of imagination, um, in, in the way that in the best sense of the term, um, the Bible once did, right, where we would gather together and tell these stories that, that, that's a form of media, um, that Christians have long used that is very compelling. Um, and so in a, in a way, digital media now is functioning, I think, in a very similar capacity, um. Story I use it's a little dated. I need to get an updated one, but um, you know, Finding Nemo. Within the first year of its release, and this was even before you know streaming platforms and everything else, within the first year of its release, sixty five percent of the American population had seen that movie. Wow! I don't think you could pick any other piece of 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 anything, a, a book, a film, an anything, and say sixty five percent of the population had encountered that narrative. Um, and and I would now include the Bible in that tragically. And so to me, it really is is one of the reasons that that media is so profoundly impactful. Now, the second part of the question is a reflection of really the last 10 years of the way specifically sort of Web 2.0 and social media have shifted the landscape. And that is that that the media landscape now um, is is delivered to us and generated and the architecture of it at a very basic level is designed to manipulate us. (laughs) Mm. It's, it's designed to give us, uh, kinds of media and kinds of interactions that do exactly what you're describing, that they, um, they cause us to behave in ways, um, that, that are, uh, you know, at the, 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 whim and whimsy of, um, the organizations and corporations that, um, want us to do something. Usually, to buy something. Um, and so that's all very intentional um, and is rooted in sort of like base level human psychology. Um, but that is the other reason, I think right now, why digital media is so pervasive um, and in, in some cases destructive, right? Um, so there's both the, here's the narrative side of things. That's, a, I think, a good. Um, and the other side is the, oh, that that opens you up to uh, some, some manipulation.
1: Yeah, I know one of the things. So I'm really glad that you brought up Finding Nemo of all movies because <laughs> um, my wife's name is Dory.
0: And so when her,
1: she taught elementary school for a number of years. And when her kids found out that her first name was Dory, they just continually called, like, acted like she was Dory the fish from Finding Nemo. Um, But (laughs) the kids got a kick out of it. They loved it. swimming. But when you talk about film and kind of the way that film shapes us and even kind of challenges us and pushes us to pursue truth as a society, how do you see Christianity intersecting with this film culture? I know you've done a lot of work on this. Uh, They're at Fuller kind of building out some of these um, engagement with film culture. But how do you think films help us to kind of pursue truth as a society and helps that narrative kind of shaping focus?
0: You know, the sort of big theological framing of it that if you don't start with this sort of framing, um, I don't think you can get to the same answer that I'm going to try to give you. the the larger sort of, as we locate something like a a Pixar movie within this larger theological framework, um, I start from kind of the biblical wisdom tradition. And and Jesus rooted himself in this tradition in terms of the way he told parables and the way he, you know, he would look out at um, the land and say, what what can we discern by the way a farmer plants seeds? What what can we discern by the way, you know, flowers grow and uh, a woman bakes bread? You know, these sort of things. Um, that's him, uh, in embracing this this wisdom tradition that goes back to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, even some of the prophetic literature, and and what you see in there really is this endorsement um, of creation as revelatory, right? Um, so so in other words, uh, by engaging and exploring the world that God created, we can know something about God. Now. Is that necessarily illuminated by the the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. That the Holy Spirit is there involved in our ability to, to know what's going on, discern you know good from evil, et cetera. But there's this base level where God said, I, "I created the world and it is good," right? And so I would go. There are kinds of wisdom that filmmakers and artists and storytellers are stumbling upon um, that are that we could say are good. Um, again, with certain criteria of discernment that we need to, to have going in, but. Um, but these are good things that God has made. And a, and a Finding Nemo is one of those, like the tragedy of of losing a wife and children um, and then following your child as a single dad, you know, through the travails of of life. Um, I mean, that man, just that opening scene of that movie gets me every time because there is a, a deep and profound wisdom that I think God looks at and says, "That's that's true, right? Like that's true about life. And so, as Christians, we can go into it uh, instead of being saying, "I'm worried what this media might do to me." I'm worried how it might pervert me or distort my understanding of truth. Um, if we're sort of empowered by by the Spirit, um, we can go, "Hey, I'm I can confidently walk into this film, this story, this narrative, and I can seek to discern the ways that that God is present and active there." And if you start from that point, it sort of shifts the the paradigm in terms of how you're engaging and positioning yourself towards something like a narrative. And and that's generally speaking how um, I tend to think about things like film and whatnot, um, that they're part of um, the kind of wisdom that is available to anyone who's uh, genuinely exploring the way that God has created the world. Um, And that includes people who don't confess Jesus, you know, as Lord, but nevertheless, is something that can be instructive uh, and helpful for the Christian.
1: Yeah, I know some of the work that you've done at Fuller and some of even the classes you've taught on general revelation or especially within the Protestant tradition, you kind of have a rising kind of interest in things like natural law is that – those who even don't profess the name of Jesus are able to discern certain truths about the universe and the way that God has created us as human beings that can be instructive to us. Not that they take precedent over the scriptures or anything like that, but they are helpful in us in understanding kind of the fullness of creation and the way that God has created us as human beings.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, and and th- there have been, you know, if you're a historian and you look at the way this, this kind of idea has has taken up, there are dangers in it, right? The and and there are benefits and drawbacks, and so depending upon the context you're in, <laughs> I think you need to be more or less uh, sensitive to the possibilities of a general revelation or natural theology. Um, but but I think yeah, there's a sort of a commitment, a Christian commitment to saying um, God created this world, um, and God created us as people who w- were shaped and designed to know God, right? Um, so the way that God has designed the human creature is is such that we actually can know God. There's, there's some way we've got to be able to do that. Um, and one of those avenues is through um, the created order. Now, the asterisk I would put on that, in, and this distinguishes me maybe from some others who are more classically natural theologians or theologists, is that um, I, I would never separate God's presence and activity in that. There are some versions of it that would say the human mind on its own can, like, go and investigate the, the world, and from there, they can infer God, right? They can infer or get to God. And I'm like, no, that not not by themselves. Um, it always has to involve um, the, the presence of the Spirit, the illumination of, of the Spirit for us to even be able to realize those capacities. So, um, so, yeah, a big part of what I do has to do with general revelation, the broader presence and activity of, of God's Spirit in the world. Um, but, but I do always have to highlight that, like God's active in this equation. There's never a moment where we're doing it on our own. And in fact, that's where we run into danger, right? Where we, we start thinking like, oh, I got it. Um, I, I can figure this out. Um, I can, uh, you know, you get a lot of gods created in our, our own image, um, when you, when you go that route. And so we always have to be uh, cautious and guard against that as well.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that, especially in that conversation that I think is really important as an inerranist as one who believes the infallible word of God is that what we see in creation or what we see in kind of the natural law isn't going to contradict what God has clearly spoken to us in special revelation. I think that's really important when we have these conversations is not that we're receiving a new truth, but we're understanding maybe the gravity or the fullness of what God has already been revealing to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I know recently you helped edit a really helpful volume called Techno-Sapiens in the Networked Era, Becoming Digital Neighbors. It's a really helpful book. We'll uh, link to it in the show notes for folks to be able to check it out. But in the book, the contributors kind of explore how technology is not really just a dehumanizing force or even simply a tool for evangelization. Can you explain and kind of uh, help us to understand a broader perspective of technology and how technology allows us to really love our neighbors when we use it with (laughs) wisdom?
0: Well, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways we could answer that, um, and one m- maybe would be to start with going. You know, we've always used technology, <laughs> and, and Christian, because we're humans. I mean, that's part of what it means to be human is that we we develop and design tools. I mean, it's it's amazing um, the the way that that we can use tools and then pass them on. I mean, you, uh, <laughs> human society is is just. Uh, sort of breathtaking in its complexity that now, especially because we can use tools without actually knowing the details of how to use them, right? <laughs> so I don't actually know how my iPhone works, but I depend upon it, um, and there's a there's a risk there, um, but it represents this sort of the ingenuity of of humans over time um, that we can pass on these sort of tools in ways that uh, that later humans can use um, without having to know all of the like inner mechanics. So in terms of of loving our neighbor, I think the first step is to go, okay, uh, these, these tools are part of what it means to be human. They're endorsed by God in the sense that God made us as people who make things, right? We're constantly responding to and recreating the things that God has handed us. If that's the case, then when it comes to technologies, uh, part of what we're always having to ask is that question of, in what ways do they enhance our ability to love God and love other people. Um, you might include in that, like, in, in what ways do they help us flourish, right, or thrive? And if that's our question, not is not the question of, is that technology good or bad, but in what ways do these technologies help us thrive? It Again, I think it sort of reframes it in a helpful way, for me anyway, because one thing that I think, uh, at least in the contemporary world where sometimes we're blinded to, is that you can get into this notion that technologies are neutral tools, right? And I don't think they are. I don't think there's any technology that is neutral in the sense that it doesn't have a direction or a purpose or a, you know, philosophy speak or theology speak, it would be a telos, right? An end that it's directed, it's going in some direction. And, and sort of modern technological conversations suggest that they don't, that it's just, it's just a tool. It's not inherently directed in any way, shape or form. So a big part of what the Christian task is of discernment is I think starting with what is the end to which this tool is inclined to begin with, right? Um, And knowing that or having a sense of that helps me determine, well, what kind of work and effort is going to be required for me to either accept that end or redirect it or, you know, whatnot. And so you could go um, there are some things that really allow us as Christians to uh, help our neighbors, and let's use social media as as an example. Um, there's a lot of statistics now that basic social services in various communities uh, are only accessible through uh, websites and uh, Facebook groups, right? So if you, for example, are someone who's homeless and you're seeking shelter or you're seeking a food pantry or something, it's almost impossible now in certain major uh, urban areas, like I live in Los Angeles, and— uh, to find those sources without having an iPhone of some kind, right? And so you could go, um, as a Christian, it's it's important for me to help and enable my neighbor, those who um, who are poor and impoverished, to have access to these things, technological access. Um, and that is a way of me loving my neighbor because that's the sort of end to which um, <laughs> this form of technology is driving is how do I provide? Um, you know, food and drink and shelter for uh, those who Jesus has called us to love. Conversely, that same exact technology, right, <laughs> um, is often um, driven not to connect people to food, but is in fact um, designed uh, in such a way that it actually divides us. It actually separates us. It it inflames uh, disagreements and tensions as opposed to um, bringing us together uh, in, in ways that are healthy and life-giving. And so, um, if we're going to say, as a church, then, um, or as an individual, how much am I willing to? How much power am I willing to cede to that technology, given the ends that I know it's it's directing myself and my activities toward? Um, is it worth my time and energy to try to redirect that? Um, and the answer is, in some technological cases, I think the answer is yes. In others, I think the answer is like it may not be worth our time and energy because, you know, you may be able to change the icing on the cake, but you're never going to actually change the cake. Um, And and that's an important, I think, thing for us to think about in terms of loving our neighbor.
1: Well, to dive in a little bit on that social media aspect specifically, obviously there is it more of the kind of changing the icing on the cake, but is there anything about the nature of social media that maybe is redeemable or something that we can step into and use with wisdom and care for people as we seek to honor uh, them being created in the image of God per se?
0: Um, yes, I mean, you you could say um, there are various great benefits to social media on, on the very basic level of keeping track with friends, being able to remember people's birthdays, <laughs> assuming they've put the right birthday uh, in their profile, you know, I, uh, keeping up uh, with family members, you know, and having sort of that that network um, and that community. I think there's a lot of really interesting possibilities uh, there that are that are real and are tangible. You know, you see all of the. Um, globally, uh, revolutions um, out there that uh, against sort of authoritarian dictatorial governments that <laughs> would not have been possible without the organizing capabilities of social media, right? I mean, that's this is just a, 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 a really interesting phenomenon. So all those are good. Um, and I would say we can endorse and we can celebrate and we can lean into it. I have entered though, and I, I just need to be honest, I have entered a a more skeptical phase <laughs> of my of my life, specifically with respect to social media. This is not technology broadly, and it's not even the internet broadly, but specifically the way the algorithms are designed and work um, in terms of the kind of content we're even capable of interacting with online in these social media platforms. And, uh, by and large, there's, there's, um, uh, my sort of techno hero in terms of his work is, uh, Jaron Lanier. And, and he was one of the early designers of virtual reality, um, and web 2.0, um, one of these sort of Silicon Valley guys that, that have their children don't get online. <laughs> they don't get online. They, you know, they're not, cause they're, they're terrified of what they created and, and so I trust his sort of voice in telling us, like, hey, what social media is doing um, because of how it was designed and then early on, you know, in the late uh, first decade of the 21st century, so 2008, 2009, a decision was made to pair it with an economic model um, that inherently does what I was describing before. It it amplifies um, engagement um, and attention is what it, it it sort of commodifies, our attention. And the way it does that is working on sort of basic human psychology of, um, you know, uh, conditioning, right? Where you are are intentionally leveraging um, certain sort of addictive, habitual capacities of the human mind, and this is the sort of shaping effect that it has. Um, and then on top of that, it rewards uh, things that we engage with the most, which are the things that we either absolutely love, that reinforce all of our preconceived notions, (laughs) or that we absolutely hate, right? Those are the two things that we will, in quote unquote, engage with the most. And then not only is that part of human psychology, but then when you amplify it through advertisers and the algorithm itself that keeps elevating those kinds of content, you get a media uh, ecology or ecosystem where you're only seeing a very narrow, hyper-customized view of the world. And this is my concern with social media is that when it comes to basic empathy, the basic ingredient of loving our neighbor, of loving ourselves, is being able to say, I can for a moment, as best I can, see the world through your eyes. The problem with social media right now is that it gives us such a hyper-customized view of the world, we literally cannot see what the world looks like from another person's perspective. The, the, the world you see in social media is not the one that I see, um, and, and that's a problem for me, that, that I need to be able to empathize with the other, with not just um, you know, uh, another person, but in many cases, in most cases, my enemy, right? How can I love my enemy if I literally cannot see the world that they see? Um, and as a Christian, that that's problematic for me.
1: There was a tool a number of years ago, and I, I cannot find it. I don't know why I didn't bookmark it, but I still can't find it. So if a listener knows of it or you know of it, Cutter, let me know. Um, but it was a tool that you could go online and you could click like a predetermined like stereotype like a, a conservative or a liberal or someone who lives in the northeast or in the south. And you would click on it, and it would show you Twitter, what Twitter looks like for them. Um, and it, I, they had some kind of understanding of the way the algorithm works and the content yep. that was prioritized, but it would give kind of, a, it was overly stereotypical, but it did yep. help us to see the world as other people see it on social media, because I think it's tempting for most of us to think, well, I open Twitter and I see the things that the people I follow, you see the things that people you follow. But it's not even that simple as Mm -mm. I don't even see things that people share in real time anymore because of the way the algorithm is prioritizing certain pieces of content. But then it's also you might like or you might also like this or you've shared this before type of thing. So it is that hyper customization that I think you wisely say it helps. It keeps us from seeing our neighbor and loving them as they are because we're seeing the world in kind of our own kind of personally curated environment, which I think is a really, really helpful way to think about it. So one of the things I want to do as we kind of round out our time together is ask two questions. One, how does Christianity help us to understand and navigate at times what feels like a very chaotic culture? Hmm. Uh, We live in a society that's constantly changing. There's all these pressures. There's You know, doom and gloom kind of everywhere we see on social media. What is Christianity as a worldview and an understanding of the world? How does it help us to navigate these things in like a calm and peaceful and hopeful (laughs) tone rather than the chaos and kind of doomsday that we often see in social media?
0: That's a good question. And, you know, I maybe I'll say two thoughts. I think, number one, I've been uh, reconvinced. I mean, it's not like I didn't think it, it for a while, but I've been like, oh, this is even more important than I thought. Um, part of the reason I'm, I'm pursuing a, a degree in sort of empirical research is I think the Christian is an empiricist. <laughs> what I mean by that is um, that that Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> we are the greatest of idiots. Um, it all hinges on this empirical fact, right? A thing that happened in the world that we have um, evidence for, right? We have a, a testimony, an eyewitness, and we have all of these things. We have the you know the basic lack of a body, you know, all this stuff that says this thing actually happened. It is true, and we have evidence to support it. Now. That doesn't mean that that we're gonna, you know, science will prove Jesus resurrected or that God exists, anything like that. But what it what I take that to mean is it's very important for Christians to say we, if anything, need to be people who pursue truth in a post truth world, right? So <laughs> right now, what that even means is is complicated. But but it doesn't let us off the hook. We don't. We we aren't at the liberty to say, um, no longer am I pursuing truth, and not just truth, but evidence-based truth. So when people in a sort of fractured society, and I know this is hard right now, um, what is difficult to discern is what even is true or not right now. And this is where I go back to, there are certain things where we can go, the Christian needs to advocate for and uh, pursue sort of shared evidence that we have. And we need to vet things in terms of, okay, I have this one witness, but I need to bring in another one. I mean, these are all sort of very basic biblical terms of like, well, you don't just trust one person's perspective. You need to get a couple, go pull in another person and another person, these sort of things, um, if if the evidence is in question. Um, and I think that commitment, now it doesn't it solve all the problems, um, but I think that basic commitment to... Um, if we are going to make claims, if we are going to uh, move forward in some sort of action, it needs to be rigorously vetted by a community of wise discerners who are actually looking at the evidence that we all can see before us. And then interpreting, you know, none of us can see clearly or perfectly. We all see through glass darkly. That's very true. Um, but, But we have to find a way to say there's some sort of common reality out there to which we're responding. Um, and, and the Christian of anybody right now in society is the one who should be advocating for that. Okay. So that's the sort of evidence side. The other side I think has been really convicting to me this, this last month I've been reading, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, sermons and his uh, strength to love. And I tell my wife I'm a realist and she's an optimist. Um, she tells me I'm a pessimist. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I think, um, I was, I was pretty convicted by a sermon of his because I, I go, someone like MLK has no reason to be hopeful or optimistic outside of his Christian faith. You remove that from him. And, and in fact, um, most histories of right now, contemporary sort of narratives about MLK will either do one of two things. They either scrub the Christian from him (laughs) and see him only as sort of like a uh, a social-minded person, or they scrub the social uh, uh, commitments from him and treat him only as like a nice preacher, right? But he was always both. And um, in his sermon, A Knock at Midnight, I'll just read you this because I highlighted it and said, man, that's really convicting to me. He says, midnight is a confusing hour when it's difficult to be faithful right? These are the confusing times that we live in. He says, the most inspiring word that the church may speak is that no midnight long remains. The weary traveler by midnight who asks for bread is really seeking the dawn. Our eternal message, that is the church's, our eternal message of hope is that dawn will come. Um, And I'm just like, whoa, that that is convicting for me is to go, when we look at a landscape right now as Christians, that seems very muddled, that seems very dark, we can easily point out to all sorts of just horrific stuff. I mean, this year has just been a doozy of a year, and yet hope is not optional for the Christian because we profess a God who is good and just. And that's what MLK was getting at, is that the one thing that we contribute to society right now— is that we acknowledge the full reality of the evidence before us that things can be bad but we hope nonetheless we are uh, prisoners of hope as zechariah would say right that we haven't any other option and i think for me that has been the sort of convicting voice that's compelled me to go okay okay <laughs> things are bad but you can't be pessimistic in the in the the sort of nihilistic sense because you are a Christ- you're a person of faith and that faith is rooted in hope and then to quote, I think Miroslav Volf says this, I think I stole it from him, that hope, at least Christian hope, is love stretching itself out into the future. And that, I think, is what society right now, technological society, uh, lacks is a sense of, of a telos, of a future to which we're directed. And I think the Christian can uh, contribute in that way.
1: Well, I don't really know of a better way to end our time together than on that hopeful note. I really appreciate that. And I'll be honest, a little bit of your Baptist pastor minister minister came out in there when you were kind of preaching hope to me there for a second. So I really appreciate that. No, it was great. (laughs) Um, And honestly, that's a great way for us to end our time together. It's kind of that hopeful tone of the way that we approach these things, because as much as our chaotic culture and society can feel, we know that we do have hope. We know that the, I always say, uh, when people talk to me about technology or are you fearful of the future? I say, no, because I know the end of the story. I know who's sitting on the throne. I know who's already been raised from the dead. And I know what it's going to be, Uh, you know, Revelation 21. And so we can have that hope. And so what our calling is, is how do we then engage the culture that's around us with that position of hope, with that position of love and upholding the dignity of every human being? So, Dr. Galloway, I just want to say thank you. One, it's been a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your work in these areas, especially in film and media and technology. It's just been really helpful. And so we'll make sure to link to some of your resources as well as those letters by Dr. King uh, in the show notes for people to check out. But I just want to say thank you for joining us here on Weekly Tech and I'm really grateful for your work.
0: Yeah, hey, thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Callaway and learn more about his work in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. It's designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.